Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for worship this morning, that we could come and gather with others and join our, voice, our voices, our prayers together. Uh, be reminded, God, that we have been called into your presence. We are your people, and uh, all of this takes place because of Jesus. Would you now teach us, Father, we ask and we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I read an article in a magazine that I found really interesting by a guy named Derek Thompson. I've not read to my recollection anything else by this individual, but I found some of his thoughts to be interesting. And I want to start our kind of reflecting together this morning with a portion of this article that he wrote. Uh, in this article, he writes this. He says, in his 1930 essay, going way back, called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, the economist John Maynard uh, Keynes, I believe is how you pronounce it, Keynes, predicted a 15-hour work week in the 21st century, creating the equivalent of a five-day weekend. Quote, for the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real, uh, his permanent problem, Keynes wrote, how to occupy the leisure time, right? This became a popular view. In a 1957 article in the New York Times, the writer Eric Barnow predicted that as work became easier, our identity would be defined by our hobbies or our family life. Quote, the increasingly automatic nature of many jobs coupled with the shortening work week leads an increasing number of workers to look not to work, but to leisure for satisfaction, meaning and expression, he wrote. These post-work predictions weren't entirely wrong. Uh, by some counts, Americans work much less than they used to. The average work year has shrunk by more than 200 hours. But those figures don't tell the whole story. I found this really interesting. Rich, college-educated people, especially men, work more than they did many decades ago. They are reared from their teenage years to make their passion their career. And if they don't have a calling, told not to yield until they find one. The economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production, you know, putting food on the table and so, to a means of identity production. That's an interesting insight. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and the middle class, work would remain a necessity. But for the college-educated elite, it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence and even community. Call it workism, he says. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. Some worship political identities. Uh, others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. That's workism. Homo industrious is not new to the American landscape. The American dream, that hoary mythology, that hard work always guarantees upward mobility, has for centuries made the United States obsessed with material success and the exhaustive striving required to earn it. 
No large country in the world as productive as the United States averages more hours of work a year. And the gap between the United States and other countries is growing. Between 1950 and 2012, annual hours worked per employee fell by about 40% in Germany and the Netherlands, but by only 10% in the United States. Here's the point. Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less in unemployment, disability, and retirement benefits, and retire later than people in comparable rich societies. Workism. It's become a religion here in the United States of America. Enter COVID-19, and it gets even more interesting. Now the percentage of people working from home, boy, has that ever gone up. A Gartner survey of company leaders found that 80% of companies plan to allow employees to work remotely from home at least part of the time after the pandemic is over. Get this, 47% of those same company leaders said they will allow employees to work from home full-time after the pandemic. In a Pricewaterhouse uh, Cooper survey, 669 CEOs said this, 78% agree that remote collaboration is here to stay. Welcome Zoom calls, right? Uh, and as good as that may sound, uh, it has also created some serious, serious new kinds of complications, especially if you're a single, uh, happen to be a single parent, or uh, if you have little children at home and both spouses are trying to work from home, uh, one of the problems is, too, that working less efficiently from home, because the consensus seems to be it's not quite as efficient as getting up and going to an office, working less efficiently at home uh, is is causing people to work longer hours to get their work done. Surveys have found that while most people absolutely do prefer to work from home, uh, there are many complications from some I've already mentioned, childcare, keeping consistent hours while working at home, working longer hours to get it all done, meeting with coworkers, those Zoom calls, Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, not too many people like that, differentiating work time from family time or home time, now, the question for many is, am I really ever off work, right? Nothing to do, nothing left to do. That, the word that kind of comes to my mind to describe all this, at least one word that describes it, is the word harried. Wow. Or maybe exhausting. Uh, now, many find themselves working while teaching kids from home. Try that hat on. Wow. Getting kids to school so that you can get back to work. Taking business calls while driving the kids to whatever, sports activities, dance lessons, music lessons, riding lessons, tennis lessons, whatever lessons they're taking. So the combination of managing work and school and kids all out of the home make it feel like a constant, nonstop merry-go-round. Round and round and round we go. Sound familiar? Does that feel close to home for you? Does that sound harried? It's ironic when you think about it. Our great God gives us children and gives us this thing called families and, and also describes this wonderful thing called labor and he offers it to men and to women and to children as a gift, but not a religion. As a gift, but not an identity. 
a gift that enables people to, to be and to feel purposeful and useful, a gift that challenges people to identify and to develop certain God-given abilities. A lot of times our abilities are, are really developed in the context of labor that we do. And we take that gift as many other good gifts that God gives us and we utterly corrupt it. We turn it into an ism, work-ism. We make it into a religion. Throughout the course of human history, countless men and women have done exactly that. With the good gift of human labor, we put children to work uh, in sweatshops and abuse them. With the good gift of labor, we put people to work in ways and in places that make labor an awful, oppressive burden. And then probably what we see most often in our day and in our country is just people sacrificing their whole lives their time, their families, their relationships, their health, even their spiritual needs and their spiritual health, all sacrificed on the altar of workism. And I believe that God, when he made human beings, knew that when sin entered the picture with us, when we rebelled against him, one of the first things we would corrupt would be this thing called work or Labor, And therefore, because this God loves us the way he does, he gave us the fourth commandment. Let, let's read it again. We're going to read all of it. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. I'll read. You can follow along. God says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, keeping it separate, keeping it different. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Not only does God command us to cease laboring every Sabbath day, but he also models this very pattern to us. On the seventh day, we're told that he rested, not because he was tired, not because he was, he was out of gas or he lacked energy. That's never the case with God, but God was simply modeling for us this rhythmic pattern that he wants our lives to display each and every week. Six days of work and then a day of rest. Now, you might be wondering or asking yourself the question, I mean, is this really that big of deal? Uh, is God really that concerned about this? And the short answer is simply yes, absolutely he is. And we need to look at why to understand why this commandment matters so much, so much to God and so much uh, to us. This commandment is very important. As many of you know, the word Sabbath in Hebrew means rest. And, uh, and in our context here, it refers to whatever it is you normally do. Uh, if, you, uh, if you manage a farm, I don't know that many here do manage farms, but, but you, you know that we're talking about farm chores, resting. If, if, you, if you repair cars, if you uh, do electrical work, if you are into medical research or putting uh, you know, uh, rovers on Mars or teaching students or running companies or making beer or banking, whatever it is you do, God says, stop it and rest every seventh day. That's what he's telling us. Part of the reason why is God wants us to know that there is more to life than human labor. 
Uh, a moment ago, I said labor is a good thing, and it is. It really is a good thing. It's, it's actually a gift given to us by God. We were made to labor, to create, to accomplish. Absolutely. It's fair to say that labor is invigorating when it accomplishes something. It's, it's fair to say it, it, it's challenging. Uh, it, it causes us to have to hone certain abilities. It's satisfying. It's rewarding. There are many things good that we can say about labor, but God also wants us to understand and underline and highlight the fact that labor is not everything. It simply is not. Even though it offers lots of perks, right? A sense of accomplishment, putting food on the table. We've all got to put food on the table. Leadership opportunities, certain recognition or reward, material comforts. All of these things can be okay. They can even be good things if they don't become things to which we are addicted. Uh, They are addictive when they take more of our time, more of our attention, more of our energy, and more of our devotion than they should. That's when these things have become addictive. And when that happens, everything else in life, everyone else in life takes a back seat to labor. Workism becomes our new religion, whether we know it, whether we admit it or not. And this is why the fourth commandment really matters. God wants to keep us from making the dreadful reductionary mistake of living just to work. And so he commands us, let's be clear, this is not a suggestion from God. This is actually a command from God. He commands us to stop working one full day out of every seven so that we never lose sight of the fact that there is much more to life than simply labor. Now, you may have heard of William Wilberforce, very interesting man. If you ever read a biography uh, on him. It's very fascinating. I think Eric Metaxas wrote one that I read some years back. Uh, William Wilberforce is a 19th century member of British Parliament, probably best known for all of his legislative labors, uh, uh, trying to outlaw slavery, and eventually he did in the British Empire because largely of his labors. What most people don't know about William Wilberforce is that by his own admission, he had these huge, huge ambitions and he was wholly, completely dedicated uh, to achieving a position of power in England. He actually wanted to be the prime minister. He wanted to be that so that he could benefit the country by decisions that would be made. But by his own admission, again, he would get carried away with his ambitions and just get lost in them. And at one point when he was reflecting on this tendency that he had observed in himself, he wrote these words in his journal. And I think these are profoundly insightful. This is what he writes. He says, blessed be to God for the day of rest and religious occupation, wherein earthly things assume their true size and ambition is stunted. Profoundly insightful. You get what he's saying, right? I mean, every seventh day was for William Wilberforce, a kind of built-in check and balance system that enabled him to keep his career and his ambitions in proper perspective and therefore in proper order. He was saying that without withdrawing every seven days from his political races and battles, he would just get all out of whack. He would get lost in his own agenda and his own ambitions and, and his own battles, right? He'd start to think that the only thing in life that mattered was winning political races and winning political battles, even if they were good causes. I love the line where he says, we're in earthly things. That means everything in our life. We're in earthly things assume their true size, their true proportion, 
their right priority. And ambition, he says, is stunted. Now, you would never say that today. You don't ever encourage anybody to stunt their ambitions. But he was wise enough to see that many of our ambitions are just misplaced, misfounded, misdirected. And he understood that his own ambition was that being the case. It needed to be stunted. It needed to be held in check and called into question in our country uh, where historically the sky is the limit. And we talk about the American dream is the goal, right? Work hard, succeed, get rich, have security, blah, blah, blah. You know, there is always in our country and in our time, there's always more to own new companies to start, new franchises to purchase, the next property, the next stock, the next sale. There's always more to control and more to grow and more to invest and more to buy and more to develop and more to sell, more to have to ensure your future happiness, success, and security. And there's always somebody with whom you're competing to make that progress. You've got enemies right out there in the marketplace and you're competing with them just for your survival. So you better work harder and you better work better and you better work smarter because that merry-go-round, it never ends. It never stops. And just kind of an aside here, point of personal privilege, if you will. Uh, I had somebody ask me not too terribly long ago why we at Deer Creek Church wanted to plant more churches. Their question was, isn't that just creating your own competition? Aren't you just going to put yourself out of business? I thought, well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I kind of like this guy's thinking. And, uh, you know, so we engaged in a little conversation and my mind went to a passage in the book of Acts. You know, I, I know pastors who actually think that way, that by planting other churches, you're just creating competition for yourself. You're putting yourself out of business. And, and I would say, not only is that completely backwards wrong thinking that that's something you shouldn't think that's something you should actually repent of and and here's why book of acts acts chapter 13 we read these words it says in the church at antioch there were prophets and teachers barnabas simeon called niger lucius of cyrene manan who had been brought up with herod the tetrarch and saul the point is in this church man they were loaded to the gills with leadership with prophetic teachers I mean, they had a stable of teachers. It was like second to none. What, what's not to enjoy about that? Who needs to plant other churches? We've got everything we need right here. Let's just get bigger. Let's just grow. Let's just, you know, be who we are. We don't need to send people out. But look what happens. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they, they sent them off to do what? Well, to plant churches. Well, when did they get this direction? It says, while they were worshiping the Lord. And I take that to mean the church was gathered. The church was worshiping. It was likely the first day of the week or what's called in the New Testament, the Lord's day. And on that day, the Holy Spirit speaks to that church, guides that church into fulfilling the great commission, which Jesus had given the church. The Holy Spirit wanted them to care about planting churches so much so that he took some of their great leaders and sent them out to go tell others about Jesus Christ. And not just, you know, tell them and leave, but plant churches. These people in these parts, other parts of the world needed to hear about Jesus. So planting churches is not creating competition. 
It's directly fulfilling the Great Commission. It's something the church has always done and must continue to do until Jesus returns. I would argue it's the most important thing any church can do. And what's interesting to me is this church learned this important lesson on the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, when they were gathered together for worship. The Holy Spirit was working and teaching and leading and prompting. What a good thing it was that they had a day set aside to hear from the Holy Spirit, a day to kind of get it all in perspective. What should we be doing? What shouldn't we be doing? A day where they could think about what mattered most, the Lord's Day. It's interesting, back to William Wilberforce, he had some friends that did not, they were not Christians, they did not observe the Sabbath day, of course, uh, as he did. And when he was reflecting on these two friends of his, uh, whom sadly had committed suicide, the pressures in their life got so great, they just couldn't face them and they took their lives. And this is what he said when he was journaling about these two friends And reflecting on it, he said, with peaceful Sundays, the strings would never have snapped from overtension. Now, he can't possibly fully know that, but that that was his perception. That if my friends had had the same weekly rhythm, the same weekly break that I take to reflect on who God is, to connect with God, maybe the strings would not have snapped. Wilberforce understood the wisdom of the fourth commandment and the essential importance of it to our lives. God knows our human uh, sinful propensities and he knows how vulnerable some of us are to the idol, the God of workism, the God of the treasures that the marketplace can give us and produce. And God knows that large numbers of us will become work addicted if we don't learn to unplug every seventh day and admit to ourselves that there is more to life than just labor. And so God says to his people in his wisdom and in his love for us, he says, stop it. Take a break. Rest. And actually in verse 10, he says, and this goes not just for you, but for your son or daughter, your manservant or your maidservant, your animals, and even the alien in your gates. And the point is this, it goes for everyone in your circle of influence, everyone over whom you have some authority or you have some responsibility to lead. So parents, that's you. Employers, that's you. Listen to the fourth commandment. Figure out how to implement this in your circles of influence and leadership. Figure out how to implement this important command in your life. Close the shop. You know, cease your labors. That's how you begin to obey the fourth commandment. Now, that's not the only question we have to answer around this commandment. Another question is, uh, what should you do on the Sabbath day? Good question. The fourth commandment actually uh, points us in the right direction in this. What it says is the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You see, taking a Sabbath is something you do toward the Lord your God or with the Lord your God. And that means, first of all, that every Sabbath day should involve a a time of interaction, a time of remembering, a time of worshiping this great God. 
you all know how over the years, uh, in various contexts, different series that we, and passages that we've studied together, I have always challenged us to, to make it a practice to, to have regular rhythms in the course of a week, whether that's two days or three days or every day, whatever, uh, have a practice, a weekly rhythm, a very intentional practice of getting alone and spending time with God, connecting with God, yielding yourself to God, pray to him, read his word, let him by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the, the, the power of his word speak to you. You see, in those times we get peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. In those times uh, we, we get wisdom, we, we find ourselves strengthened, we, we gain knowledge, we get guidance that we need. All the things we need to live life in a way that honors God and that serves him and that serves others. We get from connecting with him. And scripture also states very clearly that at least once every seven days, all of God's people should gather together for the purpose of remembering God, celebrating God, worshiping God in community Together, this has always been the practice of God's people. Uh, all through Old Testament times, all through New Testament times, right up to the present, it's always been the practice of God's people. Jesus, we're told in Luke 4, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Every seventh day, Jesus had a practice. Jesus had a custom. He made it a priority to assemble together with others who believed in God for the purpose of worship. It was something he learned from his parents and practiced with his parents. It was something he learned and observed in scripture. It was a practice that he maintained throughout his entire life. It was a spiritual discipline, if you will, for Jesus. It was a practice and a discipline that Jesus modeled for his disciples. And after he ascended into heaven, after his resurrection, as churches were planted in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, we know that Jesus' disciples gathered together in all of the early churches, and they did so weekly on the first day of the week, resurrection day. For example, at Troas, we read in Acts 20, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That, that's one of those phrases where it, it likely means they had some kind of common meal, but they also had the Lord's Supper together. So they, they would break bread, and Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave the next day, and he kept on talking until midnight. That was quite a long church service right there, but... Since earliest times, God's people have gathered with their families with other believers, and they've done so once a week to come before God. And what they would do is they would use these things that we've mentioned now several weeks running, the ordinary means of grace. We're not doing magic shows here. You know, we're, we're not doing something that's mystical and not able to be understood. No, we use the ordinary means of grace. We pray to God. We talk to God. We invite him to talk, to talk to us. We open his word. We read his word. We study his word. We ask him to speak to us. We also observe the sacraments. These are the ordinary means of grace. And as the churches did this, they were taught the truth about God and false gods, things like workism. Man and fallen man and creation and life and good and evil. They were taught about labor. They were taught about Sabbath. And together they remembered and they rehearsed these truths. Together they worshiped and together they served. 
This is why the writer of Hebrews says what he says. This is a familiar passage of Scripture to so many of us. Uh, the writer of Hebrews had to write to some, um, some people who were following Jesus, and he, he wrote these words. He said, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How? How are we going to do that? He says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So this has been a problem for many followers of Jesus right since the beginning. They lose sight of the importance of gathering together. They think, I guess, they know better than, you know, the patterns of Jesus, the patterns of Jesus' life, I guess, don't matter. They're unimportant. I don't need to pay attention to them. He says, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Jesus' return. And what this means is that when the body gathers together, we're supposed to be there, you and me. And, and I'll just kind of go out on a limb here. Um, you know, rarely if ever, rarely if ever, when somebody invests the time to come here on a Sunday morning, rarely if ever does that person regret it afterwards as if to say, what a complete and total waste of time. I should have stayed home. I should have stayed in bed. This was absolutely and totally pointless. I think that's true. <laughs> I hope that's true. Um, and here's why I, I think that's true. Because countless times, times too many to number, uh, I have had people come up to me after a worship service and they've been honest and open and, uh, about the fact that they almost didn't come that Sunday. You know, I was going to stay home. I, I was out of sorts. I had a million things to do. I was tired. I was worn out. I wasn't motivated. I was discouraged. Things weren't going well at home. But, you know, for whatever reason, I decided to come. And man, am I glad I did. Because God spoke to them. They opened themselves up to God, or maybe a better way of saying it is God opened up their, their hearts, their, their mind, their eyes, and God spoke to them. And I so long for all of us to know how important it is not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together every seven days. When you do, you are missing out on an opportunity to connect with and to hear from God. Now, enter into this picture, COVID-19. That has made uh, all of this gathering thing quite a challenge. Uh, for some, it's uh, an impossibility. They have health issues that prevent them from being able to join us here. That's just a reality. We understand that. Uh, we encourage folks that are in that category to stay home, be safe. Don't put themselves you know, at risk, high risk. Uh, don't do that. Uh, for most of us, however, uh, what COVID has done is uh, it's just made what we do here a whole lot less fun. Really has. A whole lot less welcoming. There's, there's no hugging, you know, very little handshaking, you know, pats on the back. Uh, you can't tell if somebody's smiling or grimacing at you. Um, it's not all together that welcoming. It's a lot more inconvenient than it should be. Absolutely is. Uh, there are fewer people here. I don't know if you noticed in the first service, we had maybe 50, 60, something like that. Um, you know, when we sing or, or talk behind masks, very inconvenient. We can barely hear you unless you're screaming really loud. Uh, there's constantly washing your hands. So when you see somebody do that, you don't know what are the elbow bump or fist bump or, uh, you know, I mean, what are you supposed to do with this? It's all terribly, at least to me, 
terribly frustrating and disappointing. But friends, so what? So what? There is a, an unusual kind of silver lining to this COVID thing. COVID has made many of us much more clear about just how vitally important this gathering thing really is to our personal and to our corporate spiritual life, despite the inconveniences. You're, you see, friends, it's crystal clear to me, I need this. <laughs> Uh, so, so does my wife, so do my kids, so do my grandkids, because here is spiritual rest. You can find spiritual rest here if God is speaking to you. You can find spiritual reconnection, spiritual revitalization with God, with each other, together. Even when we gather together under less than ideal conditions, even annoying Conditions. Think about this. When has there ever been a time where a sizable portion of the church of Jesus Christ has not had to gather together for the purpose of worship in the midst of very inconvenient circumstances, like having to go to a catacomb, for example, or having to gather to worship in someone's house in secret? Or having to gather to worship God in the context of a cave, for crying out loud? Highly inconvenient. And yet the church has done it. I would just say this too. When we put aside our petty preferences, mask or no mask, for the sake of worshiping almighty God, what an opportunity that is for me, in spite of what I think or what I want to do, it's an opportunity for me to lay down my rights, my preferences, my comforts for the sake of God and for the sake of others. And when we gather here, it matters. And I'll tell you why. I, I, never, I never know what God is going to do in a worship service. I sometimes think, oh man, this sermon, oh, this is a fantastic sermon. God is going to use this so great. Nothing, at least nothing I can observe. I just have to believe that he did something, right? And then God shows up and does stuff with the garbage that comes out of me. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, didn't see that happening. Or the worship is just so inspiring or so uplifting. You got a worship leader who gets choked up. Why? Because he's thinking about what he's saying and singing. You just don't know what God is up to and what God is going to do. Sometimes he inspires us and sometimes he convicts us and sometimes he heals us. Sometimes he humbles us, rightly so. Sometimes he strengthens us. Sometimes he gives us needed perspective or encouragement or peace. Sometimes it's like he's doing spiritual open heart surgery. But always, friends, whether we perceive it, know it, or understand it or not, I, this is always the stakes are sky high. Life and death kinds of stuff. When people's hearts get opened up by God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, understand there are, there, there are eternally important shifts and changes that are happening in people's hearts. Things we may or may not even be aware of. But God is always at work, ever so carefully, ever so significantly, ever so wisely, ever so deftly. 
You see, what God does here when we gather together, it has eternal consequences, life and death consequences for you, for your family, and for your friends. And so I would argue that this is as serious and important a moment in your weekly rhythm, in your use and uh, uh, use of, of the days that are in a given week. This is as serious and important as it gets. It's maybe the most important time that you will spend doing anything all week long. Understand, some people have committed their lives to Jesus Christ in our worship gatherings. They've discovered the truth about who Jesus is. Understand, others have rededicated themselves to Jesus in the course of times when we gather here to worship. Some have decided to break off immoral relationships because of gathering together with us in worship, relationships that were destroying them, destroying their relationship with God. Some have decided to get serious about discipleship and service to Jesus. Uh, Some have rededicated themselves to refurbishing, renewing, a marriage itself, as opposed to just kicking it to the curb. You see, this time slot is holy because God is here and God is at work. And that is why God wants you and me to take this time, I believe, quite seriously. And that's why God says, I want you to worship with others every seven days. Come rain, sleet, snow, hail, COVID-19 or hangover, you come and meet with me, God says. Because here, what happens is we recalibrate your heart. Your moral compass gets reset. Your priorities get challenged. Your sins get called out. Your thinking gets greater clarity. Your understanding of who you are and who God is goes deeper. And that's what the fourth commandment is all about. And let me just say to parents, you know, every single time you demonstrate consistency in your gathering together with others for the purpose of worship, you are teaching your children about your priorities and about what matters to you. And that is a message they desperately need to hear and observe. That's a choice they will have to make someday for themselves and will make. And let me tell you, you want your family patterns and priorities to factor into those later decisions they will make as young adults. And it doesn't guarantee anything. I'm not saying that. You see, the fourth commandment, the, 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 the Sabbath, is all about the practice of recalibration. I've been a Christian now for 49 years and I want to be a faithful follower of Jesus. But try as I might, I find that my life and my values and my priorities, my behavior and my attitudes require almost constant recalibration. In fact, I amaze myself how quickly I can lose my bearings. And I've said this before in various contexts, one of the greatest blessings of my life is that I am paid to be here. You are not, but I am. And that has been a blessing to me. I have to open up God's word. I have to read it. I can't even tell you how many times I'm reading it. I'm thinking about what I'm gonna say here to you all. And it dawns on me, oh my gosh, I need to do this. I need to believe this. I'm recalibrating or God is recalibrating my heart as I prepare to say something to you. It's the biggest, biggest, biggest blessing in my life. 
I need constant recalibration. Um, <laughs> and that's why I need Sabbath. I need a time and a place to reflect and to pray and to worship with others. It all helps me recalibrate. So you see, we remember the Sabbath day by, in part by resting from work. I worked six days, I'm gonna rest from work today. Uh, we remember the Sabbath day in part by when we gather, we worship God, we remember God, we celebrate God and who Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are. That's an essential part of Sabbath uh, observance. Thirdly, we, we, we uh, observe the Sabbath and in so doing, our heart gets recalibrated. And I wanna mention one more thing before we come to the Lord's table here. Uh, there, there's this thing of refreshment that's part and parcel of Sabbathing as well. It's vital to our understanding. You know, I don't need to belabor this, so I'm just gonna mention it, but uh, it's something we do in addition to worship, not something we do instead of worship, but, it, but it's refreshment. In Exodus 31, 17, we read these words. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day, he abstained from work and rested. That word rested there can also be translated was refresh. God was refreshed. Again, not because he was tired or exhausted or out of energy or something of that nature. Uh, that, that's not the case. It's simply because God had a pattern of doing certain things, creating certain things in six days. And then on this seventh day, he, it was holy. It was set apart. It was different. It was refreshing. Friends, personal refreshment is an important part of our Sabbath day Experience. God commands you to refresh yourself every seventh day, spiritually, you know, emotionally, what have you. Uh, for some, that could mean taking a long walk or uh, taking a bike ride, an afternoon nap. Could mean a family activity of sorts. Could mean getting together with friends. It could mean a recreational uh, pursuit of some kind. Could mean reading a book. It could even mean watching a football game, I think. Uh, not now, the Broncos are so bad, it's pointless when they're playing. But the point is, whatever it is that actually does refresh you, you figure that out and then do it. God wants you to do it. God wants us to be refreshed as a result of this Sabbath, this gift that he has given us. Now, step back a moment. A big part of being able to get refreshed has everything to do with faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's why. Uh, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, understanding that Jesus himself is in fact our rest. He more than anything else or anyone else makes a rest actually possible. And he invites us into that rest. How? By trusting in him, by having faith in him. Trusting that Jesus will give us everything we need. I don't have to be the provider. He is the provider. He is my sustainer. He is my wisdom, my truth, my strength. You see, part of entering into this rest is entering into Jesus Christ himself. It, part of being able to cease from my labors is to know that Jesus Christ will provide for me when I obey him, as I obey him, you see. 
Jesus will be my manna. Jesus will be my truth. Jesus will be the way. Jesus will be the good shepherd. All the things, the names, the titles that Jesus takes to himself, he will be that as I rest in and trust in him. I love, uh, I've recommended this book now a couple times. It's out on the table. It's called The Ten Commandments by Kevin DeYoung. And uh, it's just a march through the Ten Commandments, and I've read it and have uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, He has, at the conclusion of the chapter on the Fourth Commandment, some really, I thought, encouraging and insightful words. And I want to read some of them to you here as we conclude. He says this, he says, some of us are running like crazy, thinking, oh, God, why don't you give me some kind of break? And he says... I made this day for you not to punish you or to keep you in bondage. In other words, not to tell you what you can't do. That's not what the day is about, but to give you the freedom you so desperately need. Some of you are so desperately seeking the rest that you have not found in Christ, or you found it, but you frequently forget it and never stop working Never stop cleaning, never stop planning, never stop plotting or fretting or fussing or worrying and trying to prove yourself to your parents, to your spouse, to your kids, or to your church. You've never really appropriated what it means to have grace, the grace that Jesus gives. There's always something else you need to do to show the world that you're worth something, that you're valuable, you're loved, you're okay. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove anything. The world does not depend on you. Your salvation does not depend on you. In an ultimate sense, your family does not even depend on you. Can you hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, come to me and I will give you rest. Take him at his word. Believe him. Run to him. And then... Every resurrection day, every Sabbath day, every first day of the week, every Lord's day, give expression to what you believe by giving him praise and giving yourself a break. Amen? Man, that's refreshing. I mean, I hear that, and as much as any of the Ten Commandments, when I understand the why behind the Fourth Commandment, I am just drawn to want to say, Hallelujah, what a great God we serve. Look how He loves us. He's a heavenly Father to us. Look how He cares. He doesn't want me to be intoxicated by labor. He wants me to understand that I am more than just a laborer. Uh, He wants me to remember what kind of God he is and his good gifts. He wants me to recalibrate my heart, my mind, my priorities. He wants me to be refreshed. And if we would seriously start to obey this commandment, I think we would experience personal, spiritual, and corporate renewal that's hard to fathom, hard to even imagine. And you see, that renewal and that rest and that recalibration is what this meal on this table signifies to us every time we come to feast at the Lord's table. When we come to this table, (laughs) what we see here is Jesus, his body and his blood. What we have here is an invitation. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, I always am struck by this fact that Jesus gave us a a meal to come to. He didn't invite us to a dance or he didn't invite us to a work project. 
He actually gave us a meal so that when we gather in worship, you know, at a meal, you sit down, you usually relax. Oftentimes we invite friends to join us over a meal. That's what Jesus is doing here. We've become his friends because of his work on the cross, because of his death and his dying and paying for our sins. And he invites us to come have a meal with him. And in that meal, we remember his body, which he said is broken for us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So in this meal, we sit down with him, so to speak, and we remember his presence, his body broken. And we remember that his blood was shed for us. In this, he he took the cup and he poured the wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, for the remission, the payment of sin. And then he gave the bread and he gave the wine to his disciples. That, you know, we say this each time we partake of this meal. It's really important to partake of this meal appropriately, to do so in repentance and to do so with faith. You know, we own our sin, we confess our sin. This isn't something we merit. This isn't something we deserve. This is grace upon grace upon grace, the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus for you. And so the only right way to come is trusting in him, believing in him, having faith in him and confessing where we fail him. And when we do that, this meal in ways we don't wholly or fully understand actually gives us the grace, seals to us the grace of Jesus Christ. It's like soul food. I mean, you eat it and your soul, your spirit is nourished and refreshed and rejuvenated if you understand what is signified here on this table. So if you have faith in Jesus, we invite you to partake. Parents, if you've got kids, you need to know that they understand this if they're going to partake. And uh, what a privilege. What grace. What a God it is that we serve. Pray with me. Father, we come to this table and we confess our sins. We're none of us here this morning merit or are worthy to partake of this meal. So we come as sinners, but confessing sinners, and we come repentant. We want to turn away from our sin, and we come in faith, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone to save us, to give us life, to refurbish us. We thank you for his broken body and we thank you for his shed blood. We thank you that Jesus has not only provided all things for us, but he's overcome our greatest enemy, sin and death. We embrace this by faith. We partake of this meal in faith. We pray these things in faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.